Welcome to the Urban Uncovered podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Ayatollah Bain. I'm a translational neuroscience student and a researcher at University College of London. Also want to emphasize that this podcast is my personal goal of bringing zero cost to consumer information to the public. So it's quite separate from my other roles. Now, the origin of the conscious experience of pain in the brain is a continuing enigma in neuroscience. Pain can be a disease in and of itself, yet we do not understand much about it. Um, on today's episode, we will be shedding light on the neurobiology of pain pathways and how the multifaceted pain experience in humans is presented in the brain. Now, for those of you that are fortunate enough to not have or had known someone who is experiencing chronic or acute pain, I encourage you to stay in here with us because a lot of the information that we're going to cover has direct relevance to your everyday life. We, as always here on this podcast, are going to discuss some of the science, we get into mechanism, but we also really get at principles. Principles are far more important than any one experiment or one description of mechanism, and certainly far more important than any one protocol because principles allow you to think about your nervous system and work with it in ways that best serve you. Now to do so, I'm joined by none other than Dr. Nick Fallon, a leading expert on the neuroscience of chronic pain. He has attained his PhD from the University of Liverpool, where he still continues to research chronic pain with a particular keen interest in fibromyalgia. Now, Dr. Fallon, I'm so glad to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, Dr. Nick Fallon is a leading expert on the neuroscience of chronic pain. Uh, He has attained his PhD from the University of Liverpool, where he still continues to research chronic pain with a particular keen interest in fibromyalgia. Um, So to start off, perhaps, uh, Dr. Fallon, could you please define for us what chronic pain is? Of course. Well, chronic pain is defined um, by a leading research body known as IASP, or the International Association for the Study of Pain, as pain that persists for periods of more than three months after um, normal tissue damage is expected to have recovered, and therefore acute pain or pain that we, we would expect should have subsided. So it's quite an arbitrary cutoff, this three month period, but it's been shown repeatedly to work particularly well in identifying patients where pain has become problematic and is continuing um, in a way that it could even be maintaining itself. So this, this three month cutoff period is what we typically use to define pain, which is um, almost self-perpetuating in a, in a chronic state and causing a problem for the patients in a way that we, we wouldn't expect to be driven by any um, ongoing peripheral tissue damage. All right, I get it. And is it is it on a spectrum, as in are there some conditions that are very prevalent and some that are um, very specifically um, rare in some cases? Of course, yes. So I would probably um, define chronic chronic pain as a terminology is really a, an umbrella term, if you like, mm. which itself contains um, many, many different clinical syndromes and, um, and pathologies. So within the, the sort of category of chronic pain, we've even got different mechanisms that we expect to exist for chronic pain. So for example, 
under under current guidelines, we would have a different understanding of chronic pain for a patient with a known uh, a known tissue-based pathology which is causing their ongoing chronic pain. So we might think of someone with something like rheumatoid arthritis where we've got destruction of a joint um, and, and there's a known cause here which is obviously causing pain you know, right. in that patient. Um, and then there will be other types of um, chronic pain which are completely separate to this which we actually term with a new terminology which is nociplastic pain mm-hmm. and this is pain with a non-specific tissue cause so we, we don't know what's driving the pain and it's suspected that this pain is actually driven within the central nervous system hence the term nociplastic because it's argued that some sort of neuroplasticity has actually led to a self-perpetuating mechanism whereby um, a chronic pain experience has been initiated and then maintained within the brain of those patients. So nosoplastic is often applied to other common chronic pain syndromes such as um, chronic widespread pain or fibromyalgia where we don't know of a, of a peripheral or a tissue-based cause but we do know that there's this ongoing chronic pain experience. All right. Um, and for all you listeners out there, um, so um, uh, nociception is the way um, uh, most scientists refer to pain and the sensation of pain. So nociceptors are those uh, sensors um, in the skin that detect particular types of stimuli. And it actually comes from the Latin word uh, nocera, um, which means to harm. Um, uh, so just uh, touching on that. And um, Dr. Fallon, y- you say that some types of pain... Uh, the cause of it is really unknown and um why do you think is there an evolutionary purpose for this is is pain simply an attempt to avoid physical harm to the body or is there more behind it well without doubt um pain itself has an evolutionary purpose Mm -hmm. so no susception which you described brilliantly there is uh, a a useful system within our body just like every other um, sensory process which has evolved for a purpose nociception is no exception so basically nociceptors in 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 the periphery for instance Mm -hmm. in a delta fibers or c fibers are are known to transmit to transmit nociceptive information to the central nervous system these these exist to warn us about tissue damage and this is an incredibly useful um it's it's not only useful for and um, how can I put it for the maintaining the the integrity of the body but obviously if we if we receive information we can react and respond to that information so if there's you know noxious input or damaging input to the tissue it's good for us to, for instance to withdraw but it's also very important for learning so because pain is an aversive experience it's it's heavily involved in learning, especially in childhood, but throughout our life, if, if something hurts, we learn you know, not to repeat the experience. So nociception is, is very important, but I would also point out that the nociception is the, the description, if you like, of the, the neural encoding of this peripheral incoming information, mm. but pain actually adds a layer of complexity on top of that. So pain, we would say, is the subjective experience of nociception. So this is when we bring in the perceptual elements with all of those top-down psychological influences which shape and alter 
the actual um, experience in itself, the subject of experience of pain. So we have nociception, which is this kind of basic neuroscience principle. And as I say, it's very, very useful. But then when we when we ask somebody about their pain, what we receive is is the report of a very subjective and personal experience, um, which by its very nature obviously makes it quite a complicated area to research. All right. I, I think it's it's a very complicated area and it takes a lot of courage for you to invest a lifelong um, of work into it. I, I, I found that a lot of neuroscientists tend to not want to talk about pain a lot because it's a very subjective experience and it has a mental component and a physical component. Um, so I highly respect the work you're doing, honestly. <laughs> um, now, uh, speaking into our experience of pain, uh, what determines how much pain we are sensitive or insensitive to? Oh, of course, well, there are countless factors. We could mm-hmm. probably do, um, we could probably speak for an hour about the fact that we might experience. But to give some, some examples, um, there are certainly um, common, common factors which we know to be predictive of important pain processing aspects. So, for instance, something as simple as sex differences have been very, very well researched and it's been shown that the males and females would typically have different um, pain thresholds and different levels of pain tolerance so that we study those things in healthy people using ex- experimental methods where pain stimuli are applied in order to, to, to obtain you know the thresholds at which someone reports pain or experiences pain and also how long they can they can um, endure that pain for which we, we, we refer to as pain tolerance so we find things like sex differences in those but there are also all kinds of other um, more nuanced differences that we might find so sex differences might be down to for instance biological differences between individuals and um, hormonal differences genetic components things like this but there are other elements which would be far more psychological even things like um you know social factors such as someone's background and um, we've we've I myself have worked with students on some very interesting experiments and looking at social factors, for instance, comparing military veterans with with um, control populations or athletes to non-athletes and things like this. So many things can can impact um, the pain experience. But to just give you those two kinds of examples, we can look at it from different perspectives and say, well, are the biological factors that impact the experience of pain yes that's highly likely mm-hmm. are there psychosocial factors that, that influence the subjective experience of pain yes that's also highly likely so what we need to do and as you say it is a complicated area but we need to try to disentangle in our studies the the role of these different um, strands if you like because i think you touched upon it earlier but um, according to definition of pain we would now define pain as a a biopsychosocial experience so it's got that sensory component which is very important but it also has an emotional or affective component i.e how averse or unpleasant it might be and okay. also it's a social factor because pain experience will elicit for instance pain behaviors and the, the reason of those pain behaviors why do we rub our arm or, or grimace is probably to elicit help from from our social group you know to to show the doctor or show our family member that we're suffering so it's a very complicated area and as for 
in what might affect our subjective experience. You know, all all of these factors play a role. Yeah. All right, and um, so uh, from what you're from what you're telling us here, I could understand that pain is a perceptual thing as much as it's a physical thing, um, and it's it's a belief system about what we're experiencing in our body, and it has a lot of important relevance for healing um, different types of injuries and in our everyday interactions with people in a sense play a role. So did I get that correctly? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... Uh, yeah, I, I think that pain is. We say that pain is multifaceted. Mm. Um, it it is, as you say, in evolutionary terms, it's important. But it's important to us as a, as a warning system for tissue damage. It's also important to us, um, you know, for for social interactions. Mm. In, for instance, and you know, empathic processing. We see as an overlap, if you like, in brain activations between when somebody experiences pain themselves personally or when they witness pain in their environment that there are similar systems within the brain which are activated in these two scenarios and and this that's because even witnessing pain in another person is itself an aversive experience and one of the ways that we might act or behave in order to alleviate that aversion would be to to offer help or to go and to go and help the person that we see suffering you know to pick up the person who's fallen and hurt themselves so you can see how there's a very social element to pain in that even the, the observation of another in pain can elicit an aversive reaction which leads to pro-social behavior all right i got it um and um you know we've we've been touching a lot on the experience of pain but what about the absence of such an experience um i've, I've come up across a literature showing that there is this mutation uh genetic mutation in a particular sodium channel um um oh, for all you listeners out there as well a sodium channel is one of the these little holes in neurons that allows um, them to fire action potentials and they're very important for the function of a neuron um and they're very important for the development of certain neurons um and yeah so the so these particular mutations children that are born with them um uh, they're unable to experience any pain no pain whatsoever and it's a terrible situation so um w- can you tell us more about it yeah of course so so um this genetic factor it's there's actually a family in italy so it is very rare mm-hmm. there's, there's a there's a, a lineage in italy who have been very well studied because and th- this genetic mutation exists and it's been passed down several um, generations and, and this family have been studied and um, quite extensively and the, there are two things that we learned straight away from this line of research. Firstly, we learned that pain in itself is useful, that it's evolved with an evolution, with a, with a purpose and a, um, an, an advantage to the individual. Because okay. people, the people who are genetically predisposed to not experience pain do not actually do particularly well. And um, so the first thing I would say is that it, it underpins the usefulness of pain. And um, unfortunately, people who are born with this genetic um, you know mutation and they 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 can 
live short lives because of, for instance, uh, they can suffer quite severe accidents and not not know about this. So we, we've had case studies where patients have walked around for a long time on a severely fractured ankle. And obviously, um, that's a very severe tissue damage. And the right thing to do is to have that ankle reset and to rest and to allow it to heal. They don't get that information and they walk around and they do more damage and you know perhaps can even lead to infection and, and, and things like this. So it can literally shorten life. But actually, the, the biggest difference that we see is in childhood when pain is a is a huge um, learning tool for children and, and throughout stages of early development. So children learn um, not to touch a hot stove by getting too close and maybe they touch or maybe a friend touches a hot mm. stove and they see the pain. But pain is an important learning tool for that child. And um, when a child doesn't learn safety boundaries in the same way, that it can, it can be very, very problematic. So for instance, some of the patients who and display this genetic mutation. As children, they've done things like bit, bitten the fingernails, but, but then they've continued to bite and they, they've chewed in the fingertips, you know? Mm. And so we see we see a lot of problems which really underpins the, the usefulness of pain. And that's one thing that we learn. A second reason for studying people who have the absence of pain is because obviously we can all envisage that there are circumstances, i.e. people with chronic pain and people living, you know, who aren't suitable for typical analgesics, but we can envisage circumstances where knowledge of how to switch off the pain signal would be incredibly useful. And what we are finding is that it's not simple. So people have have studied the specific solitude channel mutation that you are referring to with a view to, you know, could we could we utilize this clinically um, to our advantage? And up until this point, there's no success, you know, no clinical translation for this, but I, I do believe that that research is ongoing, as I say, with specific um, families who, who are very generously given their time. All right. Um, oh, and, and are there any current available treatments for this, or is it um, is it still not? Sadly, no, no. So there are there are no treatments. This is not reversible. And um, I believe that you know I'm not personally familiar with the the family, um, but I believe that this is managed mostly by a very specific and tailored um, education. So in the absence of pain as a learning tool, and mm-hmm. um, the, the there has to be, you know, redoubled efforts with other um, with other methods to try and teach, particularly the children, that you know this this is damaging and although it doesn't feel um, damaging to you, of it course. is damaging and you know it's going to cause a problem. Mm. And also, believe it or not, in adulthood, I believe that they get past the problem that I referred to of walking around on a broken ankle. They get past these problems with very, very regular medical checkups after any sort of bang, bump or accidents, whereas the rest of us would wait for a throbbing pain as an indicator that we might have done something serious and that the the family would, would have to go for a checkup to be investigated maybe they need an x-ray to check if anything's broken because they can't identify it through the normal channels oh wow um well no i i feel i think this i really hope future researchers do focus more on you know um 
hopefully finding a treatment but this kind of really sheds a light on how pain plays a huge adaptive role to our everyday life and it's not just something that you know happens and <laughs> we can just brush it off it's it's yeah it's ingrained in everything we do and um okay if if we were to get a little bit to the nitty-gritties um the neurobiology of um you know pain uh, what role do the chemical messengers known as neurotransmitters play in the facilitation of pain okay of course well and so so the pain representation in the brain Mm -hmm. is is unfortunately as you would imagine unfortunately complex i work particularly with neuroimaging methods and not at the cellular level so not not investigating the the neurotransmitter level but i can tell you that the because pain involves a network of activations which are bilateral and you know involves limbic and neocortex activations and i can point out that there are many many different regions of the brain that will be involved Mm -hmm. in any pain experience and also that these regions will absolutely involve um, various many varied types of neurotransmitter activation okay so we know that there are a role for 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 instance um dopaminergic transmission in in particular pain regions we also know that there is a a very definite role for um, opioids endogenous opioid based systems which are managing our our experience of pain so we've actually got a brain to spinal cord connection which is involved in in basically a multi a multi-purpose system which can either be responsible for descending modulation of pain so we can use this system from prefrontal regions to to brainstem which is an opioids pathway endogenous opioids obviously and we can use this system to dial down the incoming pain signal but the same system can um, actually facilitate pain signal and actually ramp up pain which can be useful in other scenarios to to draw our attention to it and more recently there's been a, a, a recent focus on the endocannabinoid system and the role mm-hmm. that it could play in pain it's also thought to potentially be important so i'm afraid that the answer is that um, every well-studied neurotransmitter has been considered in the in the realm of pain and Although some, although there is a kind of a pecking process, for instance, there's a massive focus on endogenous opioids, which might be involved in things like placebo effects and, and so on and so forth. Whereas there's a focus on some rather than others, it's such a complicated experience that that all and um, all of the commonly researched transmitter systems are, are considered important. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, so we can't really underpin one uh, tran- transmitter. It seems we're going for ranging from glutamate to dopamine. But um, I-, I don't know if uh, I I don't like to have favorites. But I'm gonna be honest. I do have favorites. I love dopamine talking about it a lot <laughs> and um uh, presuming that um you know pain is reduced by the release of dopamine um uh, so uh, does dopamine release itself blood pain and uh, is that a thing i don't believe so my, my knowledge of, of um dopaminergic transmission and pain um, comes from the, there is a literature with parkinson's patients and mm-hmm. actually there is some belief that um, Parkinson's is actually associated with 
with some pain which is which is linked to you know muscular effects and muscular weakening um, and this sort of like dystonic um, you know muscular control if you like mm. and so i think that there is there is certainly a role but if you're asking if we could if we could use dopaminergic um, drugs if agonists if you like to flood the brain with dopamine with a view to alleviating pain and not to my knowledge so unfortunately you know what the drugs the most popular drugs and um, for especially for nosoplastic pain so pain that we suspect is being driven or maintained by the central process the most popular drugs are actually anti-epileptic drugs so they would be you know your gabapentins and and they're actually they're actually trying to promote um, inhibitory just calming influence on the brain which is what those drugs were developed for for, Mm. that they are originally anti-epileptics but it's found in no surplastic pain that at least in you know a third of patients we see good results in that those patients will will report some pain relief from these drugs which are which are actually gather Based drugs, GABA agonists, I believe, and um, and and so that's that's where the neurotransmitters are at the moment. The problem that we have is that the the range of pharmacological drugs available for chronic pain and um, uh, have varied success. So some patients get really good results, and some patients get absolutely no relief whatsoever. And we, this tells us that yes, there can be there can be neurotransmitter related. Um, drivers here, at least for a proportion of patients, but it, there is no silver bullet. So unfortunately, we're not in a situation where one size fits all, and we can say that this is a perfect drug. And um, opioid-based drugs, on the other hand, have been shown to be very effective for short-term or acute pain relief. So, for instance, if if you or I was to undergo a, a painful medical procedure, you know, if we were to have wisdom tooth removed is one of the most common things that we study because it's a common procedure which is known to 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 elicit pain which lasts for a few days you know a severe pain and so if we were to have a a molar extraction of wisdom tooth removal and typically the dentist will give us you know an an opioid based drug and it might not be morphine it might be a sort of tramadol you know type type drug and this will typically work well for you and i so the natural progression um, in the pharma- pharmacological world was, well, let's try that on um, long, longer-term chronic pain. And this is what we've seen, you know, more recently. But unfortunately, those opioid-based medicines in randomized controlled trials, when we look at patients over a long period of time, they don't elicit much in the way of ongoing pain relief. So whilst it would work well for us in the acute pain state, post-operatively, if you've got pain which is lasting for months and years, eventually, after an initial bump where patients say they like the opioids, eventually we see the pain levels return to pre-treatment levels and they kind of stagnate around that. and as you know, I'm sure you're aware that the opioid-based me- medications have you know, s- quite severe side effects. Of course. Um, and, and, and even social um, implications, which we've seen more in the US than, than in the UK, but we've, we've seen leakage of opioids which leak into the local community, um, you know, where they can be used for 
and for a list of purposes or, and, and so on and so forth. And they're, they're also, you know, highly addictive drugs as well. So actually, you know, the, the, the opioid-based pathway has not worked super well um, for chronic pain either. So we're at a situation where the, the current pharmacological options are varied. And luckily for some patients, we do find um, an option or a pathway that works very well for them. But for many patients, um, that the, the isn't currently a pharma option that mm. they are very happy with, that relieves their pain in a way that they are satisfied or improves their quality of life and, you know, with, without side effects. So, so okay. that, that is a very important and ongoing um, line of research mm. and all, all major pharma companies are, are pursuing this because, you know, pain is such a big problem, chronic pain is such a, a common and prevalent problem. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, up to <laughs> translational uh, neuroscientists to just um, <laughs> get on uh, creating something that kind of um, accommodates each person's subjective needs in a sense. So that's where personalized medicine comes into play, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But yes. This is the dream moving forwards, I think, is that there are actually a lot of um, weapons in the arsenal at the, at the moment because there are many other non-pharmacological treatments for chronic pain. Mm-hmm. For example, um, you know, there are pain management programs where, which are multidisciplinary programs where patients will undergo a variety of different interventions. For instance, exercise-based therapies, talking therapies, and lifestyle changes and so on and so forth and these have been shown to be successful but as as i say and the different types of therapies that are available work for some patients don't work for some patients and we need to perhaps direct our research towards identifying and the type of patients who will be best suited for for a specific type of treatments and hopefully that can start to improve the the responder rate um, across all different types of treatments. So it might even be that the tools we currently have available could could solve much more of the problem, but perhaps we can um, we can tailor things better per patient. Oh wow! Okay, um, thank you for clarifying this. Um, so, uh, you seem to really emphasize that as a researcher, you can't really be making specific recommendations for patients. Um, so you're not really professing anything. Um, you're just giving us insight into uh, the current um, findings that are out there in the literature. Uh, so, uh, in keeping with this theme, I want to know a little about. Uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation aka TMS Uh, what are your thoughts on it do you think it has any potential benefit Um, does it serve as a maybe you know um, complementary treatment modality for patients with uh, chronic pain yes so so it's a it's a non-invasive method which is already actually approved in in the UK and beyond in Europe and the US. It's approved for use in patients with major depressive disorder. And that's because, you know, randomized controlled trials have shown beyond reasonable doubt that um, that, that this can this can help um, a patient, even a patient with very, very severe MDD. Um, And actually, this is that there is a very recent paper or, or protocol that's been published called the same paradigm it, it comes from stanford university which is using brain imaging to tailor 
the stimulation sites for repetitive TMS in in these major depressive disorder patients and to, to maximize the benefits or maximize the results. Now, to use that as a, as a parallel, that is a, a fantastic example of translational research, which has taken you know, many years, but it's taken a concept that, you know, depression is a, is a network disorder and affecting the brain in, in many different ways and complex ways, but that if we can non-invasively um, impact the brain in a, in, a, in a fashion that can perhaps um, take the patient out of a cycle of or, or an episode which is which is negatively impacting them, you can see how we could definitely take that concept and start to take that across to chronic pain and think, well, when we think about nosoplastic pain, we have a patient who is in a chronic pain state, we don't have evidence of tissue damage, and we can see some sort of self-maintaining and um, brain-based um, or central nervous um, you know, system or, or mechanism. So the idea is that we, we will be very interested in using this type of technology. It is currently trialed um, in a, a local neuroscience centre called the Walton Centre, right. um, where they are. They and, and it's something that we use in patients who are completely refractory to all other treatments. So, for instance, patients who who haven't been successful with non-pharmacological interventions, with any pharma interventions that many have typically been tried. And as I was saying, it works well in a refractory group of patients. So, for patients who nothing else has worked very, very severe in patients who've got very poor quality of life. We found that TMS can, can positively reduce pain and improve quality of life in around a third of those patients. So whilst the 30% the, the is perhaps not spectacular, it's, it's super encouraging because these are really the most difficult patients to treat for whom nothing else has worked. What we're really hoping is that we can follow the pathway of the same protocol that I mentioned earlier, and perhaps we can um, individualize or tailor the approach so that we can elevate that number of 30% and start to come up with the treatments which, which works for for many, many more patients who we trial this on. And um, that's something that we're very, very interested in. You know, TMS is non-invasive and, 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 and painless really for the patients. So this is an interesting new approach, but there are many others, other neuromodulatory approaches with, um, with stimulators that can even be used in, in your own home. So there is a whole body of research out there at the moment, which is trying to come up with novel new ways to influence the brain and pain and to to hopefully improve the lives of patients so you know fingers crossed in future we will start to see some new technologies and some new treatments available oh wow that's that's fascinating and um uh, about you uh, doctor what, what aspect of this research are you most excited about um in the future Sure. So, so for me, I'm particularly interested in, in fibromyalgia, um, as you mentioned in the introduction. And fibromyalgia has been something I've studied for the past 14 years, I think now. And it, it represents a huge problem. So I think in the UK, we've probably got a prevalence rate which indicates to us, based on best estimates and best guesses, that we, we might have up to a million people living with, with fibromyalgia in the UK. So this is actually a huge problem because for these patients, we can we can give the diagnosis and we know that they're living with chronic ongoing pain, they've got severe fatigue um, and it leads to a, 
the severe impacts on quality of life, but actually beyond this, because we don't fully understand the mechanisms driving the pain experience, we can't offer much in the way of relief. Some patients do respond well to non-pharmacological interventions, some respond well to pharmacological interventions, but there are many patients, in fact a majority, who would say that they're not really satisfied with their treatments. So, you know, the, the, we, we, we would like to do more for this group. So look into the future. Um, I'm excited about about new research, which is actually looking outside of the brain of these patients. So when I when I studied my, my PhD, it was entirely on the concept that the fibromyalgia was a central sensitization syndrome, in okay. that it was initiated and, and driven within the central nervous system, so that the patients were overly sensitized to to incoming stimuli, which led to this kinds of brain on fire scenario that, that everything was upregulated and, and they experienced this ongoing pain. And um, I believe now I, the, 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 the neuroimaging data suggests that, that central sensitization is an issue in fibromyalgia, but I'm excited that we're, we're now starting to think about that as one component of the disorder. And for, for instance, we're starting to consider that in tandem with other interesting um, possibilities for instance whether there could be peripheral drivers and um, you know that uh, uh, might interact with a, with a brain response to to cause or to maintain this sort of notoplastic states within the within the patients and um, so this is the type of work i'm doing at the moment i've expanded and um, my my pool of collaborations in the, in the past few years and, and my aim has actually been as a as a neuroscientist and someone who's very you know, always been interested in, in brain imaging methodology. My my primary aim recently has been to be more multidisciplinary, to work with people who 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 have no interest in the brain. You know, let's see if, if, if I can bring your your perspective and my perspective together and maybe we can learn more and um, you know from from this sort of more holistic approach. So that's something that I'm very excited about moving forwards and I'm very lucky to have fantastic collaborators in um, based in Liverpool and beyond and um, who are who are similarly minded that you know who are open to fibromyalgia and new methods or, or new approaches to consider this sort of complex syndrome. And and yes, yeah, so that's something that we're hoping to to achieve in coming years honestly that sounds amazing um i mean because pain is you know it's an enormous public health challenge and um being able to find like-minded individuals that are willing to you know give it the immediate focus that it needs is, is truly amazing and much needed so thank you so much dr fallon for your time and for all the work you're carrying um on for the benefit of the wider public thank you so much no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here. <laughs> um, for all you listeners out there, in this episode, we highlighted the important relationship between pain and the inter- interactions that take place in the brain. Uh, we touched on physical pain alongside treatments and research currently in place to tackle it. Uh, now, I don't wish you uh, injury, or <laughs> but I do hope that um, you'll take this information to mind and that you'll, uh, you will think about it. Um, if ever you find yourself in a situation where you have to ask ask yourself, you know, um, what's the difference between my perception and actual tissue damage? Um, uh, You know, uh, is injury and pain the same thing? Uh, Well, 
from this episode, you realize that no. Um, and um, do I, you know, do you have the same control over your experience over pain as anyone else um, as well? No, it's quite subjective. Uh, absolutely. Um, so, um, yeah. And, um, and so there's an incredible subjective component to it. And it's quite an interesting, um, uh, it's quite an interesting topic um, that I'm so thankful that you, you know, gave us your time to listen to this episode about. Uh, so, yeah. Um, thank you uh, for listening to the episode and most importantly thank you for your interest in science bye